This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get them out. You're listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast hosted exclusively by Fire Force Ventures and Commando Blog Part 2, Fire Force by Chris Cox. I'm Hank, joined again by my lovely, voluptuous host, Bindu. Eh? The bush around us suddenly erupted in gunfire. Who was doing the shooting? Where was it coming from? The machine gunner to my left dropped behind cover and began firing to his front. At what? I stood there in a daze, bewildered and completely confused. Bullets, or what I presumed were bullets, ripped through the foliage above me. It took me a ridiculously long time to realize I was being shot at. When I did so, I dropped to the ground and crawled into a shallow sprut. Then I cautiously poked my head over the bank and attempted to assess where the firing was coming from. But learning nothing, I just aimed my rifle to the front. I'd never fired a rifle in anger before, and suddenly I began to wonder, was I allowed to open fire? They won't think I'm wasting ammunition, will they? Will they shoot me if I shoot? Will I be charged? I pondered these weighty questions and eventually decided to fire. I squeezed the trigger nervously, and the shot rang out. To my relief, I found that no one had objected. Still worried, I glanced to my left at the MAG gunner. He was firing furiously and taking absolutely no notice of me, so I decided I should carry on. Feeling much better, I squeezed the trigger again, and again, oblivious to the intense din that was exploding in my ears. Then as suddenly as it had started, the firing ceased. We withdrew a hundred meters or so, and I wondered what was going on. What's happening? I asked the burly rifleman next to me. The lynx is going in for a strike. We must find some good cover and keep our heads down. We ducked behind the shelter of some rocks and waited. Shortly afterwards, there was the roar of an aircraft approaching to our front. It flew across the front of our position at treetop level, reminding me somehow of a large gray shark sliding in for an attack. Two bombs hurtled earthwards and detonated a brilliant explosion in front of us. I felt myself wince involuntarily. Immediately afterwards, we stood up and resumed sweeping towards the contact area. Gelatinous, embryo-like lumps were burning as we advanced across the green veld. Corporal Seward spotted what looked to me like a bundle of rags beneath a bush. In an instant, his rifle was at his shoulder and he fired three shots. The bundle grunted and as it rolled over, a communist AK-47 rifle clattered to the side. I was astonished. So that was a gorilla. The bundle had seemed so inoffensive. I studied the body curiously. Still smoldering napalm had bored ugly holes in the flesh which gave off a sickly sweet smell. The skull had been shattered by a bullet and brains were oozing through the scalp in a riot of blood and plasma. The mouth was fixed in a grimace of death while the eyes stepped up, stared upward as if in a trance. So this was death. So this was death. This is an account from Chris Cox's 1988 publication, Fire Force, which deals with his experiences in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, Three Commando in particular, we're actually reading the fourth edition here, which I believe was uh, a 2014 publication. And it's pretty damn intense. It's a 2011, 2011 publication, publication. To be precise. Pretty, pretty damn intense, mm-hmm. I would say. Yes. If you have not listened to our first episode, which 
is basically us giving a overall rundown of some of the terminology, some of the characters, the some of the people, the training, the mindset that these young men are getting involved in going into combat, and just the background on the book. Obviously, Chris is writing this just a few years after the Bush War has ended. Mm-hmm. So the emotions are still very raw as he's writing this. Uh, the, the first bit of the book takes place in 1986-87. You can tell right away that a lot of the emotions mm-hmm. are still very raw, and this is when he's kind of writing this book, 86-87. Mm-hmm. And of course, this book is actually first published in 1988, so this was very recent for him, and it's a very good primary source for coming to understand the Rhodesian Bush War. So again, if you haven't listened to episode one, definitely do check that out. We give a lot more context. What our goal here is not necessarily to read the entire book for you. There's, Like we said in the last podcast, there's plenty of services, providers, people that'll do that for you. And that's not that's not what we're here to do. In fact, we want you guys to actually go out and, and dig deep into this book yourself and come to mm-hmm. really understand the Bush War from the perspective of a Rhodesian troopie in a book that was written just a few years after the Bush War had ended. What we are trying to do is use this book as an example to look deeper into the Rhodesian Bush War and the men who fought in it. Last podcast, we talked a bit about the training, the difficulty of the training, mm-hmm. uh, parachute training, yes. uh, weapons handling, drill, discipline, Rhodesian discipline. Yes. We talked about the foreign volunteers, Portuguese, British, mm-hmm. American, New Zealanders, Aussies, West Germans. We talked a bit about the terminology, some of the terminology used. We talked about some of the equipment used as well. We didn't have a heck of a lot of time because we had a lot to talk about. And mm-hmm. we went on a few tangents about the gear, but we'll, we will revisit here again. And we, we do need to revisit uh, the discipline. We do need to revisit the idea of discipline in the Rhodesian light infantry and certainly throughout the Rhodesian army during this period. It was pretty darn harsh. The standards were extremely high, and we mentioned recruit training being pretty brutal, just given the nature of the content that these soldiers were having to engage in, the nature of the training, the conditions, the heat in Africa, the Mopane flies, the buffalo thorns, but also they were big sticklers for detail and the rules, and that's where a lot of the complaints came from. Like you had mentioned earlier, Bindu, they were Rhodesia's little idiots. <laughs> the RLI were for the Rhodesian Light Infantry, of course, as we know. But they had, a, they had a bit of a reputation, and their NCOs and the officers were not a big fan of that reputation. And oftentimes, the young troopies paid the price by being sent to detention barracks for relatively minor offenses. Mm-hmm. Which happens to Chris Cox. Which happens to Chris Cox. He has an incident, basically, where he has an ND, a negligent discharge for... A star pistol. With a star pistol. And he is then, and I quote, off to DB for 28 days. 28 days for an ND in... 
glasshouse conditions. Pretty gnarly stuff. Bread and water. You know, constant drilling, constantly being yelled at for 28 days for having an ND. Now, an ND is relatively serious in a military context, right? A lot of people will actually call it an ND because they don't want to call it an AD. You'll hear the terminology sometimes thrown around, AD, accidental discharge. In the military, there's nothing accidental about something going bang when it should go click. That's how it's treated, and that's certainly how it was treated in the Rhodesian Army. So he has this negligent discharge. He's thrown in jail for 28 days, which is pretty severe. Not as severe as decimation yes. in antiquity, but it's still pretty bad. There's another for, for a relatively modern military. There's another man in who Chris Cox mentions in doing DB with him, who's actually sent to solitary confinement a number of times, which I can only imagine would be hellish in a hot African country like Rhodesia being put in a little cement cell. Yeah, that wouldn't be fun. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're giving these guys AC. No, no, they are not. So it's not. But, you know, we made the point as well last podcast, if you're going there with pretensions of glory or delusions of grandeur that you're going to be this Lord Byron-esque mercenary, Mm -hmm. you simply weren't. You were going to show up, you're going to get your ass whooped by these NCOs, you're going to have to abide by these very, very strict rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't even get to the French unit, we were going to talk about them last podcast, but there was a regiment, or a company rather, a 7th Independent Company in the Rhodesia Regiment, where these guys were formed with the idea that they would be treated like they were mercenaries because a lot of them were former mercenaries from either service in the French Foreign Legion or service in the Belgian Congo. They're Mm -hmm. all French speakers led by the infamous Colonel Bob Dinard. And these guys showed up thinking that they could be pulling the shit that they were pulling in the Congo. They'd be paid well. They'd be treated like adults. And that's not mm-hmm. the, what they were found. They, that's not the way they discovered. They were, instead, they got yelled at a heck of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> they got paid very little in a worthless currency. Yeah. And they they didn't treat the black population overly well by most accounts. Now, interestingly, they had the, the first black officer in the Rhodesian army the regular army at this time actually was in this unit the seventh independent rr seventh independent company R rhodesia regiment they had a black captain in that unit he was a i think he was an ex-foreign legion kind of guy he just happened to come from africa before he joined the legion but these guys did not do well they didn't do well operationally they didn't work well with the local tribes the tribes didn't really like them which was kind of unusual for the Rhodesian military mm-hmm. there's a lot more cooperation than, than you'd think these guys showed up kind of like French cowboys also they didn't speak the language so that didn't necessarily yeah, they help. didn't speak English they didn't speak Shona they spoke, <laughs> yeah, they spoke none spoke of the it. local languages. none of the local languages yeah. so they did not do well and it was because of the way the Rhodesian way mm-hmm that was yeah. the, not not open to negotiations. Yes. 
There was kind of a were. badass quote associated with them, but in reality, they were. Yeah, what was it like? We're here to fight co- for communism, and we're here we're to here fight. to fight for France in Africa against communism. It's something along those lines. You can yeah. find it on their Wikipedia page. It, it's kind of a a based quote, not gonna lie, but they were not a very effective regiment in the field compared to the rest of the Rhodesian army. Yeah, they did pretty bad. Again, if you haven't listened to that first podcast, definitely go check that out, and uh, we, we go into a lot more detail about that kind of stuff. We just want to cover that 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 base. There are a few points with the last podcast we, we made. You know, there, I think we should have a little more clarification. I talked. We talked about the jeans. I think I talked mm-hmm. about the jeans. Yes, I would Having, fight for a pair of jeans. Yeah, t- fighting for a pair of jeans. So there was chemical warfare going on in Rhodesia mm-hmm. at pretty high levels that's a whole other can of worms we'll address in another podcast yeah but I, I i described that there was anthrax and and cholera and what was the other one ricin ricin being yes. administered now there's evidence of all that but the the thing with the genes because anthrax cholera ricin you can't really get those by just putting on a pair of jeans mm-hmm. it has to kind of be injected or like inhaled the contact chemical that was used in the Rhodesian chemical warfare scheme was organophosphates. And basically that's, you know, you, you mm-hmm. contact and your toast over time. Like it slowly kills you. Yeah. It's pretty gnarly. Absorbed it's, through it, the skin. It's absorbed through the skin. So it was organophosphates and there's a lot of evidence that that was used by special branch. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, when Chris Cox is in the bush, he has no idea what's going on. He only mm-hmm. learns like almost years later that, oh, that's, chemical warfare yes uh, it wasn't like every troop was going around gassing villages <laughs> no the it was it was a very the the way chemical and biological agents were used in rhodesia was very a very sneaky very subtle no mode no of man you don't no, think I, so? I would say it was just poorly done <laughs> Was, I wouldn't say was, those are mutually exclusive concepts, my dear friend. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah, you're you're right. It was it was yeah. there was a lot of subtlety to it. It was yeah. a lot of hush hush. But I think at the end of the day, it was so badly administered, and they ended up having a lot of collateral damage that they needed to take yes. care of because they kind of tried to hide it, and they didn't even want the regular line units or special forces yeah. units to really know what was going on. They kept it under wraps. And there was a lot of issues with the chemicals they were using and how they mixed them. They're basically using fertilizer mixes yes. and stuff. I, I'm just, what I was saying is just that putting poison or deadly diseases on a pair of clothes and hanging them out where a gorilla might pick them up is a bit more subtle than when generally you mention chemical warfare. Yeah, People think, think of poison gas, exactly. the Western Front, what's been happening in, you know, Syria. Mustard years gas. ago, yeah, people people think of that when they think of chemical and biological warfare. That's not what was happening. Yes, no, that's that's what I meant by sneak. I, I should also point out that I am not a military man. I've never been in the military. There's a good chance to address this, so I apologize if sometimes I use the wrong terminology for something. It's a mag, not a mag. Yes, yeah, no, I, I I've been You've I've been, been I've been informed of that. You've been schooled. Yes. Perhaps um, I'm have... no expert either. I'm no I'm no weapons expert. Yes. I've just read a lot of books. Do you want to talk about weapons now? Oh, we should talk about kit. Uh, oh, let's. Okay, I have another correction with the last podcast. I, we talked about Sergeant Hugh McCall. 
mm-hmm. and him getting into an argument with a British soldier about whether the U.S. or the U.K. is greater. And they're both making fun of each other because the yeah. Brits, like, or sorry, the, the, uh, McCall, the American, is like, we beat you guys in the American Revolution. The Brits, like, well, we burned your White House down in 1812. Ha ha. Yeah. And it's just like a YouTube, yeah, Viet- yeah. YouTube flame war. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned that he had served in Vietnam and he had been awarded, he had been wounded. Now, that's not totally true. I'll give more context on McCall because he talks quite a bit about McCall at the end of the book. Yes. Hugh McCall was one of the NCOs, uh, section stick commanders in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. He ended up becoming an acting sergeant by the end of his time there. He was a veteran of the 173rd Airborne, so naturally when he showed up to Rhodesia, ha- having served in the 173rd Airborne in Vietnam with the U.S. Army, he became a paratrooper. And where did he become a paratrooper? He joined the RLI. So he was a paratroop instructor. He was very, very well-liked, very, very popular, especially among the Amer- the other American volunteers. And he brought a lot of American-esque things to Rhodesia. It's mentioned in the book he actually leads a marching cadence where... He sings the very, very American, uh, what is it, pin, uh, pin those medals upon my chest, yeah. tell Ian Smith I did my best. So he brings yeah. like stuff like that to Rhodesia, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Sadly, we're talking weeks before, I think maybe months before, just, just before the war's end, sadly, Hugh McCall is killed in action in 1979. Mm-hmm. He's killed very tragically, and another American, Stephen Dyer, an ROI guy runs over and tries to basically pull him out of danger because I think he's been mortally wounded. That other American is killed too. So it was a very bad day when uh, both of those guys were shot. And, 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 you know, Cox hears about this, but he's been out of the ROI for, I think, a few years at this point. Yeah. But I want to emphasize that the guy did serve Vietnam. He wasn't the exact American I was thinking of. Again, there's a lot of volunteers, and I kind of got... I kind of got him mixed up when I was describing him with another American volunteer, George Clark, who was a... He was actually born in Canada. Mm. And at a very, very young age, he moved to California, where he kind of had a laid-back, surfer dude kind of life. He ended up joining the United States Marine Corps, and uh, he was involved in all kinds of big ops. I believe Way City was one of them. He was wounded twice. He soldiered on... And made his, you know, found his way to Rhodesia after, especially how a lot of the Vietnam vets have been treated upon their return to the United States. Mm-hmm. They figured they keep up the fight elsewhere, and they weren't they weren't very pro American by the time they they got back home. A lot of them. Yeah. So George was one of these guys that went over, and he was killed in action uh, during the Rhodesian Bush War as well. He was uh, support commando RLI. Mm-hmm. So he was another one that was killed in action. I kind of got the, the two of them mixed up. But he he was a recipient of two Purple Hearts, and he was part of a Support Commando, which was actually the fourth fourth commando unit within the RLI structure, mm-hmm. where they were basically in charge of heavy weapons and mortars and stuff like that. So support, quote-unquote, support weapons. Mm-hmm. So Support Commando. Let's talk a little bit about the gear and we should definitely give a little more context i think to the nature of the tribes and the fact that in many ways the rhodesian bush war was a civil war oh absolutely by every possible definition completely it was not 
an a war a war for liberation it was not a war of oppression it was not even a war to defend Rhodesia it was a civil war in many ways it was certainly was, seen as all these things by people know, fighting but ultimately it was a civil war I would say it was a civil war for land at the end of the day power yeah if, if, if we're going a, to be yeah, cynical if we're going to be cynical, cynical you land and, yes. and, and gold and, and resources so I don't think looking back that it was even about like communism or ideology it, it became a civil war when, when we look at it objectively and we will be kind of getting into some of the gnarlier bits of the conflict and some of the atrocities on both sides and they scream civil war at least mm-hmm. to me from yes. from my perspective yeah so we're going to give a little bit of context about that and again like i said we i want to give a little more context about gear i talked about the hallback device device mm-hmm. with the fao i talked a little bit about the weaponry about the mags with the initial contact there that you just read at, at the beginning of the the podcast chris cox is using the fnfal to to pretty great effect he sees terrorists slumping over, flopping over, floppies flopping over. Uh-huh. It's pretty gnarly. He sees the MAG gunner rattling off rounds, as the MAGs do. The Rhodesians were also known for the use of the Bren gun, a World War II era uh-huh. rifle, or sorry, light machine gun, which was fairly effective as well in the bush. Star pistol, and kind of whatever else they could get their hands on. Yeah. SKSs. Era 180s. He certainly mentions the use of guerrilla weapons by Rhodesian forces when they... Yeah, whenever they ran into them. Yeah. We, RPDs, yeah. Uh, yes. AK-47s. Yeah. So their weaponry really varied. Generally speaking, for a line unit, it would have been the FNFAL. For second line units, it would have probably been a G3, uh-huh. which was not as popular. It got a lot of complaints because it just didn't have the... Uh, reliability of of mm-hmm. the uh, FNFAL and a lot of them came kind of second hand from the Portuguese so they're kind of reject rifles from, yeah. from the Portuguese service so they didn't do very well and they kind of found their way to these second line units like the uh, like the Spear of the, the Spear of the Nation security force auxiliaries later on which were basically a formation of turned terrorists which were not at all effective. The Rhodesian Guard Force, which was another unit that was kind of like a paramilitary establishment of whoever they could find. (laughs) (laughs) Farmers and accountants and and random people from one of these, these, these protected villages and stuff. So these guys served honorably, but they were definitely not on par with a unit like the Rhodesian Light Infantry. They simply just get, didn't get the training. They didn't have the weaponry. They're, yeah. they're using these G3s that were apparently jamming and having all sorts of issues in the bush. G3, isn't that originally a German gun? Yeah, that's, that's the German rifle. Yeah. Now, were these ones made by, like, HK in Germany? I don't think so. They were probably put together by some Portuguese peasant... Yeah. In a hut. I, 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 from what I've heard, like yeah. I've heard nothing but complaints. I, I haven't heard. I never met a single person. And feel free if you people know somebody that that knows somebody that knows somebody who's like ah the G three served me darn well in Rhodesia. Please get him in touch with us. But from everything I've heard and every book I've read, they speak very highly of the FN and the MAG, and oftentimes even the Bren, which was 
a pretty antiquated LMG at this point, yes. but they still spoke pretty highly of it and its firepower capabilities. But the G3, I've never heard anything positive about. Mm-hmm. So they have the, they have, that's, that's a bit more on the weaponry. I wanted to expand on that. The Rhodesians didn't really have any heavy armor until a lot later in the war when they captured a bunch of T-55s. And they used it very infrequently from what I understand. No, I don't think they ever used them operationally. They never went out. They just trained on them. They had crews ready to use them, but they never actually had to deploy them in a, I guess, combat capacity. They were operational at times. They were present during the election period and during the internal settlement you know, 1979, but mm-hmm. they didn't uh, really, they didn't really have any pitch tank battles with the T-34s and T-55, the other T-55s that Ferlimo had uh, later on in, in Mozambique. So we talked about them, them having tanks. The Rhodesian did have a few tanks. They had the George Armored Car, obviously. They had a, they had a yeah, wide they array. They loved the George Armored they Car. They loved the George, which was, which is a, the Ferret Armored Scout Car, which is like a dinky little thing with, Mm-hmm. A twin machine gun on it, and it's it's kind of yeah. it's kind of funny looking. It's like a it's like a Volkswagen yeah. Beetle yeah. of tanks. It's I, tiny. I feel though for when you're fighting in the bush, probably something smaller and more maneuverable like that is probably what you want. It did the job. Yeah, it did the job in a lot of a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have a lot of Unimogs as a utility vehicle. Uh, it was the Unimog that kind of brought. The Salute Scouts around on their big ops, especially Op Eland, when they basically mocked up their their trucks to be look for like limo to look like gorillas. terrorists, to look like gorillas exactly, yeah. and they showed up and they they schwacked a lot of people. Yes, we'll get into that very shortly. Actually, yeah, that that's a whole other yeah. that's a whole other big big op with uh, yeah. with the Salute Scouts. It's mentioned in this. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it was a big big morale boost for them. Yes, so. In the bush, we talked about short shorts, and like we discussed last podcast, a lot of these guys have, like we discussed last podcast, a lot of people have the idea that the Rhodesian light infantry especially were this regiment of pale, what's the meme, pale white boys in short shorts. Yeah. By 1960, or 1976... By 1976-77, that was simply not the case, especially when a lot of these operations are happening while Chris Cox is in the service. They're wearing, mm-hmm. oftentimes, jumpsuits, a two-pocket jumpsuit. Yes, and indeed, on the cover of the book, there's a picture of how I think your average RLI soldier at that time probably would have been dressed. He's decked out. He's wearing the pattern 64 webbing, which... Had, it was pretty modular as far as webbing systems are concerned. So you would have multiple mags of three, uh, 20 round mags for your 308 or mm-hmm. 762 NATO for your FN. You'd be able to carry around your neck some additional ammo for the MAG, especially if you're in sport commando. You'd have rifle grenades in mm-hmm. your pouches. You'd have a lot of private purchase pouches, famously from, from the company Faraday and Sons. Mm-hmm. You also had companies like North also producing basically what we're, what we'll, I guess, call fishermen's vests or fire force vests, which are basically, they kind of look like a life jacket and you'd be able to carry tons of mags in them. And then you'd be able to modify them as needed based off of respective needs. So we, I've seen examples with snap buttons. I've seen examples with pull tabs. 
kind of British 58 pattern style. They had a very, very simplistic 64 pattern belt most of the time, which was basically the British 37 pattern belt, except instead of the old school, almost Great War style brass loops, they had these more, I guess, modern loops, you could say. I think they were plastic, if I remember correctly. I think, actually, no, they're, sorry, they're metal. But they're they're pretty... Yeah. They look they're, black. They're like a, there, yeah, right? they, they look black, yeah. yeah they're they're, like they're kind of like a ring. They're not than, these ancient brass colors. Yeah, they don't have the yeah. um, the three three slot brass rings that you have in, like, the Great War and stuff. You, in the, or the Second War. So, they... I guess they advanced a little bit. But, and, and they're pretty simple. They weren't overly complex, but it gave these guys a very, very modular system so they could act as a grenadier. They can act as a rifleman. They can act as a machine gunner. Uh, they could act as a, a radio operator. They, you know, they had a very distinctive uh, radio carrying pack as well and, and small pack and sleeping bag. And they were, they, were, they were pretty decked out. They had a lot of kit. Now, the only thing that we, we, I guess it's part of the myth of the Rhodesian soldier, what he, what he looks like in the bush is that he's not wearing a helmet. And that was, that was pretty damn common. Mm -hmm. They very seldom wore helmets during internal operations. They did wear them for para jumps yes. from, from a lot of photographic evidence. I see a lot of evidence of the helmets being worn when they're, you know, doing their, their operational jumps or, mm -hmm. or practice jumps, especially. There's documentary and, and photographic evidence of them being used in external operations, especially when there's armored support. Obviously, the armored crewmen were wearing helmets yeah. for obvious reasons. Yes. But during the a lot of these contacts that Chris Cox gets involved in, these fire force missions, which form kind of our perception of what the Rhodesian bush war was, which is these, these grand helicopter, airborne ground envelopments of small terrorist cadres, these guys are not wearing helmets. They're wearing soft caps, oftentimes called cunt caps, because you look like a cunt when you <laughs> wore one. He, I think he does talk about that in Fire um, Force. He does I talk believe about that's cap. mentioned, yeah. No, and sometimes... And uh, you, you, they, the reason they called them the cunt cap is because they had a they had a neck flap. Officially, they, you'd, you'd call them a kecko, a gecko yes. hat. Yeah. So they have this buttoned up neck flap that you can unbutton and, and basically protect your neck. But a lot of the guys didn't like it because it kind of intruded on their movement. It was just an extra yeah. piece of fabric on their head. So they would they'd snip them off mm. and they'd oftentimes substitute that cunt cap to not look like a cunt. They would wear toques. Yeah. Surprisingly enough, in Africa, you, you see toques because it did get cold yeah. every now and again. Yeah. They were uh, private purchase boonie hats. I've seen evidence of those. Mm -hmm. And Actually, I have a I have a physical yeah, booty hat. And sometimes they just go bareheaded, from what I understand, or wear like a bandana or, bandana. or something. Yeah, yeah. They would they would oftentimes have something on the head, just at least for sweat and yeah. I've just I've protection. seen a lot of photographs of them like taking it off or stuff for in in the bush when yeah. it got too hot or yeah. So the headdress was definitely not conventional. It was. And I mean, this wasn't unique to Rhodesia. You'll see even during the Falklands War, mm -hmm. uh, when the Royal Marines are landing yeah, on the Falklands, they're all wearing berets mm -hmm. or or some sort of boonie or something. Uh, you'll see British soldiers operating in Aden and Yemen, Australians in Vietnam. Very very few helmets, and it's just a it was just a Commonwealth thing. UN peacekeepers sometimes wear just berets as well. Little berets, yeah. especially during this period. Yeah. Actually, no. I I think um they had 
by and large, they move to helmets. They, they, they certainly helmets. do wear helmets, but I've, uh, I've noticed that. A lot them, of when they're actually yeah. doing anything a little more gnarly, when they might get into a gunfight. Especially a lot of, I've just just from my ref point of reference would be footage and photographic evidence from the Belgian Congo. These guys are wearing helmets. That's that's my experience. Yeah. Now, probably for PR shots is what you're maybe thinking of that they're. No, not- well, I'm just thinking of like, yeah, PR shots, but also I've seen pictures of like Canadian peacekeepers in places like Yugoslavia or something, and they're not wearing helmets. Those are those are PR shots. Okay. No, and, and, All right. no, no, hundred percent. These guys All right. are wearing helmets. Yeah. Okay. You know more than I. <laughs> it's funny when Jean Chrétien, who was the Prime Minister of Canada, showed up to Yugo, he was wearing. A helmet backwards. So I know they're wearing <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because he looks, he like thinks he looks so badass and he's walking around. He's got a big goofy smile. Christian was a national treasure. Yeah. Anyway. He choked a reporter once. I wish he was prime minister. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's, he's better a, than our current guy. guy. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, we support uh, Jean Christian. Yes. Please run against her. Please yes. choke more journalists and wear ha- helmets <laughs> yes. backwards. Yeah, so I know they wore helmets yeah. because I saw him wear that. S- and everybody around him, where in the hell was from, like? He's like, he's <laughs> gonna say it to first. Laugh. Gonna... Okay, so we've got we've gone on a little bit of a tangent, but that that gives you an idea of yes. some of the gear. I also got to add, uh, interestingly enough, the water bottle was either a South African plastic canteen, which is not a whole lot different than like a like a USGI canteen that you'd see today, or it would have been a British pattern forty four steel or aluminum canteen, probably mm-hmm. Second War. Vintage, and I've seen one that's actually a British 44 pattern canteen. I see a lot of times they'll be carrying two just because you guys it's Africa. And to this day, the standard operating procedures, the SOP, and the, you know, for, for context, your SOP is basically how what the rule book is for the military, what's the standard, mm-hmm. what should everybody kind of have and do. Standard operating procedure, yeah. right? The SOP in Africa now, with a lot of anti poaching groups, is still. Uh, steel or aluminum canteen and the reason is plastic and camelbacks those hydration systems get absolutely wrecked by the buffalo thorns of mm-hmm. southern africa they, they they don't stand up to that so you 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 brush up against something it very well could rip right through your camelback or plastic canteen yeah you need and you, you can't you can't cook you out of metal. it you so you need metal mm-hmm. so that's what the rhodesians generally had on their kits but it's a pretty modular kit they can adapt to again being a grenadier, a machine gunner, a support gunner, a a rifleman, a set, you know stick commander as needed. They could have a sidearm on them, so it's a very very modular kit. They were pretty decked out when they actually went out on these missions. They had a lot of ammunition, at least at least the line units did. The BSAP is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. They didn't carry as much, you know. T- long story short, same with the guard force and and other mm-hmm. territorial units. They didn't carry as much. Chris Cox does mention running into territorials and noticing, like, yes. man, these guys have, like, two mags each. Yeah. They're not going to last in a gunfight that's, like, over 20 minutes yeah. long. They're going to run out of ammo. Well, so yeah, Territorials were were not... Uh, <laughs> when God created territorials, it wasn't <laughs> fighting Zanu he had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Chris, Chris is in a world where he is getting probably the most resources outside of perhaps the Salute Scouts or the SAS. Yes. These line units are getting most of the investment from the Rhodesian government at this time, which is actually not a whole lot because it's not like they have a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. They're doing everything on a shoestring, but they're getting kind of the top of the line stuff as far as we're concerned. So 
they're they're kind of a good benchmark for the the best of the best in in, mm-hmm. in the Rhodesian military. So let's talk about a little bit about the Civil War here. Yeah, no, we should talk about aspect. yeah the, the actual fighting, the, which we've certainly between touched them, on. Yeah, but or who they're fighting rather. Who they're fighting? Yes. So to give context, we should additional con to give additional context. We should talk about the conflict between the Shona and the Netabili and, and, yes. and where they fit into these groups. Cause we, we talked about Mugabe and Zanu. We talked about Joshua Nakomo mm-hmm. and Zapu. There were different wings of these individual groups. There's different cadres, but by and large, they kind of fell within two factions. One faction led by Robert Mugabe Mm-hmm. Through the bulk of the Bush War, there was different there was different leaders at yeah. different times. For the bulk of the Bush War, and the dominant figurehead by the end was a gentleman, Robert Gabriel Mugabe. He led a group called the Zimbabwean African National Union, or the ZANU Patriotic Front, as it later became known. The other group, and by the way, uh, Mugabe was from the Shona tribe, mm-hmm. which became the majority of the population in Zimbabwe. By the time of the Rhodesian Bush, where they weren't historically the dominant or majority yes. group, but they became just just because of the way that the Rhodesians had implemented yeah. agriculture and invested in infrastructure and stuff, in, the population was able to grow. Interestingly enough, there was actually a fair bit of almost immigration to Rhodesia during this time, or at least with like yeah, we'll, we'll, black we'll, we'll, people we'll, we'll coming in yeah, through we'll, the borders. Okay, we'll, yeah. we we'll we'll get there. The other group was the Zapu, the Zimbabwean African People's Union. That was led by a gentleman by the name of Joshua Nikomo. He came from the Metabili tribe. Now today we would know them as a as the Netabili tribe because that's how you actually pronounce it. It was kind of a in British Empire anachronism that they mm-hmm. called them the Metabili and it's still called Metabili land now, but the way you actually pronounce it is more with an N N D E L E L E Netabili E, sorry, yeah, N D E L E I can't spell it. Nedabili. B E L E. N D B E L E. And again, he led a group called Zapu, and they were at this stage, they were kind of the minority of the black Africans living in what was Rhodesia, what is now Zimbabwe. Historically though, prior to the arrival of the Europeans, because of the fact that the Matabili Kingdom historically was a offshoot of the extremely powerful Zulu kingdom and Shaka, Shaka Zulu's armies. Basically, they were, they were kind of a rogue nation-state that developed because of how big this, this, this Zulu kingdom was. Mm-hmm. They were the dominant power for a very, very long time until the British Empire came up from the uh, South Cape, Africa. Cape Coast, Cape Colony, and engaged in a bunch of skirmishes, engaged in, in several wars with the Metabili, mm-hmm. defeated them roundly. And as a result of the defeat of this kingdom and the decline of this kingdom and the fact that all the remaining tribal chieftains declared pledged their allegiance to the British South Africa Company. It wasn't sorry, it wasn't actually the British Empire going up, it was a, it was Cecil Rhodes's yes. British South Africa Company. So a company working on kind of half of the British Empire, but not necessarily the British Empire itself. When these guys came up, the Metabili 
kind of declined. And the Shona, which had historically been kind of oppressed by the Metabili, kind of rose up and, and mm-hmm. became a lot more successful under the rule of the British South Africa Company. Simply because they weren't being hunted down by these this much more powerful yeah. warlike tribe. And the word Shona, and they, they weren't even really a collective of... A, a, a nation, as we would know today, they were just—they were just loosely affiliated tribes that vaguely spoke the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't really become the Shona people as a like a as a, a like one people until the arrival of the BSAC, the British South Africa Company, in the region. So I know I talked a lot there. It's a lot, a lot of contexts. A lot of there's a lot of yeah, history. No, that, and that's fair. I am yeah. I'm barely scratching the surface. There's always more to more to learn about this, mm-hmm. and it's it's quite yeah. complex. And some of it is it can get lost in translation because I'm talking about Shaka Zulu, Netabili, Metabili, Shona. Yeah. But it is important to understand a at least have a baseline understanding of the history. Yes. And mm. kind of why. There's two groups rather than just yeah. one united terrorist group, and it's 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 largely on tribal lines. Yeah, that's that's what I was just about to say. So you're saying that the an, the historic antagonism between these two tribal confederations basically is what a major reason why there are these two rival Marxist groups rather than just one united front. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they didn't have one whole. So you do have two groups that they're fighting. Yeah. At different times, I would say in many ways that the Zipra fighters under the Zapu banner, so that's Nakomo's banner, the Netabili, were definitely, uh, I would say, a heck of a lot more professional because they had Soviet advisors mm-hmm. who very shortly afterwards are going to be fighting their own conflict in Afghanistan, but they, they had been doing a lot of covert stuff and supporting different smaller communist governments at this time. They had put down revolts. So they had a little bit of experience doing stuff. They had a they had a lot more disciplined structure. They weren't big on the people's army theory, which conversely, ZANU under the Mugabe government was big on. They were just like, we're just give a guy a gun and, and yeah. kind of send him into send him into the fray. And ZANU had red Chinese support, right? Exactly. Robert Mugabe. Exactly. They they're kind of the, the two main people's communist yeah. governments people's are kind of also split exactly by this it's war. just it's just yeah. that the the ho chi minh mao zedong style people's war it doesn't matter how many people it takes to, yeah. <laughs> to die drown the enemy in corpses yeah and that wasn't that yeah. wasn't that wasn't uh zippers thing they were a lot more professional they were better armed yeah. oftentimes they had they had a better logistics and i would say that gen- generally they they performed better yeah. now at the end of the day, they actually lost. Yeah. But they did generally perform better than a lot of Zanu fighters. That's a generalization, but you will find that in a lot of these ops that when they're up against Zipra versus up against um, the up against Zapu. Yeah. Zipra are all also responsible for the infamous shooting down of the airliners, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Those are Nicomo's guys. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I know that basically derailed peace negotiations in oh, I, I think that was in 78 yeah there's a there's an interesting book about that by countdown yeah uh by uh, mr is it barry nels barry nels i'll, I'll look that up in a moment mm-hmm. but there's there's a lot of interesting stuff about the shooting down of the viscount aircraft in yeah. rhodesia in the in the late 70s and how 
you know, basically one of the one of the aircraft there were no survivors. They shot down an entire airliner. The second one yeah. crash landed. A bunch of people actually survived, including like a pregnant woman, but they were all shot and bayoneted to help. Like most yeah, of the survivors. Yeah, no, they, they were. Enough. They were. These were definitely massacres. Uh, yeah. While we are on the subject of sort of the the local peoples of Africa, there's a story I'd like to actually recount, which is related to the Fire Force missions. Uh, it is a story of a man named Joseph. And he is by far, I think, one of the most interesting characters in this entire book because he represents, in my mind, what was quite the uh, situation many, I feel, black Rhodesians found themselves in, where yeah. they weren't entirely on board with I Ian understand. Smith's government or um, what was called white rule, but they also were not fans of the the Zanu and Zappu yeah, terrorists. They're groups. caught in between and they're kind of forced. Yes. Oftentimes in this case of the case of Joseph, he's forced to make a choice. Yes. In a very dramatic way. Yes. Joseph wanders into the Rhodesian camp one day and explains that he had been collaborating with Zanila guerrillas. Zanla? Zanla. Zanla. Yes. But has decided to turn against them, and is, he says, "Jesus is my witness; they've killed my family, and now you must kill them." Those just directly from the book. And Joseph leads the Rhodesian soldiers back to the Zanilla camp, and they have actually quite a successful Zanla. Zanla, sorry, Zanla, <laughs> the guerrilla camp, and they they wipe them all out. They have quite a successful. Um, Was it a fire force mission? Fire force mission. Ah. Uh, Yes, well, I guess it yeah, had to be, technically, because Fire yeah, Force so were always yeah, always in response. But what's insane about Joseph is when they go back to find him, because he was accompanying them on this mission, they just discover a bunch of blood, and they later discover that one of the RPGs actually blew away his nose, his ear, and most of his right arm, and he ran 30 kilometers till he could hitchhike to a hospital in a place called Umtali, and he was apparently conscious during this entire time. And I think I will read a passage here that sums this up. We certainly wished him well. He was truly a brave man. He was a hero if ever there was. I, those are, that's Chris Cox's words, right? Those are yeah. Chris Cox's words. If, if, you're, if you have a beer with yeah. you, drink a toast for good old Joseph, because that yeah. is quite an incredible story, I'd say. So you, you, have, you have people kind of caught up in, in both sides. Yes. There's people that obviously make their decisions, especially those that join a unit like the Rhodesian African Rifles, which is yes. basically entirely manned by black soldiers, at least yeah. in the, the regular battalions. Many of whom probably hated the guerrillas far more even than the white soldiers because yeah. they were tribal, uh, had tribal rivalries on top of... Sort of the anger at the violence that and the guerrillas were causing. On a, on a deeper level, there were there was family animosity yes. within families. Those like we there are stories of brothers killing brothers intentionally, intentionally because they had disgraced the family by joining one side or the other. There are hundreds of cases of murders, oftentimes soldiers that were in one of the Rhodesian African Rifle Battalions, the regular line units, or soldiers that were in one of the uh, yeah, Guard Force units or Security Force Auxiliaries going, coming home on leave after having served 
their time in the in the bush getting whacked the moment they get home by somebody in their village that doesn't like them. Mm-hmm. It was very, very common. So you just because of the nature of that retaliation, it happened on a tribal level between the Shonen and Billy. It happened on a clan level within those larger subgroups of people. It happened within families themselves. It happened in so many different contexts that it, in every way, was more of a civil war than it was a war of liberation or a war of like self-defense against communist incursion. Now, of course, it was kind of both of those things, but the civil war aspect was definitely bigger. There was always tribal elements at work. Yes, um, and quoted directly in the book, uh, Chris Cox says this, a member of First RAR, a Karanga tribesman, said he had no qualms about killing black terrorists. I'm a soldier, he said. The politicians can come with their politics. I'm fighting to win this war. That's a mindset. Everybody yeah. was fighting to win their own war. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that guy was a Rhodesian front voter. No, probably not. <laughs> probably he, not. He was probably not somebody who heard speeches by Ian Smith he and said, you SOB, I'm in. Yeah, he but, wasn't one of those guys. Yeah. That being said... You know he he was he was batting for that team, and it was mm-hmm. I think probably because of some family motivation, probably because of some clan motivation, what have you. So it was a very complex war in that yes. sense, and it's very easy for a lot of this stuff to get lost in translation mm-hmm. because we oftentimes just, especially if you look at any mainstream articles in yes. academia, you'll see the. Freedom fighters slash terrorists are fighting the Rhodesian white minority government. The government versus the terrorists. The government versus the terrorists. Government forces killed this many terrorists on this operation. Or freedom fighters defeated this many Rhodesian white imperialists in this battle. It wasn't really the case. You you almost have these micro wars going on within this greater... These micro conflicts going on within this bigger bigger bush war. I think you find that anywhere where there's quote-unquote colonial wars. Like one... I read a book not too long ago, great book by Osprey Publishing about the Plains Indian Wars. And the U.S. government actually in many ways was kind of a minor player for that until the very end. They were mostly inserting themselves into other people's wars and I think what happened with the white Rhodesians is they found themselves part of conflicts that predated them by hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That, that's a, that's exactly what they're coming into. Like I said, historically the Shona were kind of yeah. subservient to the Metabili kingdom just because they, the Metabili were dominant in the area. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the BSAC showed up before the Metabili were kind of subdued a little bit. There was a lot of animosity. There was, there were executions. There were, um, there were on, on both sides. Like you had some yes. gnarly stuff going on. There was a number of uh, summary executions of gorillas, which is mentioned in the book. Uh, these grew more frequent actually towards the end of the war, because Rhodesian forces were worried that gorillas would just be released and that they'd be fighting the same men again, and that is used as a sort of justification. Uh, by Cox for a gorilla that they discover and kill while he's trying to surrender. I will now read from the book. McCall checked out the wounded man who was losing a lot of blood and whimpering in pain. Do you reckon he's worth keeping, McCall asked. I shook my head. Okay, Bob, sort him out. 
Smith put his FN rifle against the man's temple. The gorilla's eyes widened in horror. He obviously couldn't believe what was happening to him. Smith pulled the trigger. The body was thrown violently backwards as the head disintegrated in a shower of blood and brains. The dead gorilla twitched briefly and then was still. Times had changed. A year ago we might have saved him, but not in 1979. We didn't want gorilla prisoners who might only get a gal sentence after all our efforts or even be reprieved and integrated into the army as a reformed quote-unquote ally. That's it. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion at this point about taking soldiers, yeah. former former Zipra or Zappi yeah. soldiers into the security force auxiliaries at this stage. And I think a lot of them, a lot of the Rhodesian soldiers at least, realized that these guys that had been shooting at them might be on their side. And there's just, there's just a lot of animosity. Certainly by 1979, a lot of the, the goodwill towards prisoners of war on I, on both sides, because so many black soldiers have been massacred at this point, coming back home on leave. So many white civilians had been killed, and on the on the converse, so many innocent civilians have been caught, caught up in the crossfire and killed by both sides. This was certainly not a clean war on either side. The Rhodesian Air Force, for example, bombed villages where guerrillas were hiding, and of course there were civilians, including women and children, who were killed in that. Um, there are a number of times Chris Cox mentions where they would always, in this kind of a war, you shoot first or you die. So there were sometimes innocent civilians who were amongst guerrillas or were even in the woods who were mistaken for guerrillas and shot. And of course, there were some times where guerrillas and civilians were together and all of them were shot. And of course, there were executions. On the other side, there were massacres of white and black civilians by guerrillas. There's a particularly horrific massacre mentioned in the book where I'm, I'm not going to read an excerpt from it, but basically they went in, cut parts of the face off a tribal chief, made him eat them, then bayoneted him to death, then made a woman beat a child to death with a stick, uh, and then killed all the livestock. And there was all sorts of rather horrific things done to villages, to missions, and to white farmers. Um, and indeed, one of um, Chris Cox's compatriots, uh, a man named Gavin Fletcher, uh, his reason for joining was that his parents were farmers who were killed in a guerrilla raid. So yes, this was certainly not a clean war on either side. It was very bloody and very dirty. and It got worse as time progressed. Sure. Exactly. It's it's very complex to read about a guy admitting he blew a guy's brains out, a wounded soldier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure everybody would have their opinion on that. The reality, I think, for those of us that haven't been on the front lines, is that it's it's very complex. Now, I've I've never had to be in that no, situation neither myself. Neither for that matter. I think there's very few people alive that have been in that situation, even veterans of a modern conflict like you know mm -hmm. the, you know the global war on terror gwat vets yeah. I, I don't think that any of them were ever put in that situation where they've got somebody wounded mm -hmm. and whenever it did happen it was always like a big big deal story and yeah you know, people got in trouble and stuff for that right in canada there's a case of uh, captain robert samura where he had a guy in afghanistan recently blown up by an airstrike his intestines were actually on a tree above the guy and the guy was begging to be shot more or less and oh. so captain semru was a officer in the canadian army took out 
I'm not sure what weapon he used. He mercy just, killed he, the guy. He mercy killed the guy. He mm -hmm. told his troops, kind of like, turn around, piss off for a second, and he he, he shot the guy. Mm -hmm. He got in a lot of trouble. He got demoted by the Canadian military. Yeah. He was he was you know he faced a court martial trial and stuff for executing a prisoner of war for not administering first aid to this guy who was mm -hmm. basically like two seconds away from being clinically dead because mm -hmm. again his intestines were on a tree. So that just gives you that's what we know. That's the detail they shared with us. So we can yeah. only imagine the the shape that this guy was in mm -hmm. on D Day when the Greatest Generation jumped into Normandy. They were also given orders, don't take prisoners. Mm -hmm. They had no, I guess it would have been a written order, maybe somewhere along the line, but it was kind of a hush-hush. It was like, hey, you guys are landing behind enemy lines. Hitler has the commando order issued. You will be executed if you're captured because you are mm -hmm. a commando. There is no, no possibility that you're going to get away without an execution. So don't take prisoners because don't expect to be taken prisoner. That was a mindset for every paratrooper jumping in on mm -hmm. June 6, 1944. And this is the, this is the greatest generation that we often talk about and think of. And I think that the trying to come to moral con conclusions or, or make judgments on morality rather when you haven't been put in that situation is, is, is a fool's folly because it's complex. It's a hard. It's a hard place to be, and th this is what they're facing in 1979 because they kind of know their war is almost over, and the animosity has gotten really, really bad at this point. I read something not too long ago, and again, I'm not comparing the Rhodesians or what they were doing to what I'm about to talk to about, but I was reading something not too long ago, which basically said that on the Eastern Front in the Second World War, you could consider most soldiers on both sides committed war crimes. Now, when we think of war crimes, we generally think of machine gun a whole village, but if you're talking about executing captured soldiers or men trying to surrender, I have no doubt that not only the Varmok and the Red Arm or and the Red Army, and I'm not defending either of those groups right now, but I would say if you use that standard I think all militaries throughout history have probably mostly committed war crimes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, war is, I mean, it'd be nice if war was a clean, Tolkien-esque, you know, just two armies fighting in battle. Or and just killing orcs. Yeah, yeah, there or was not. killing bugs yeah, the Federation. Yeah, there was, uh, and there weren't tough moral questions, but the fact is, War is always bloody, it's always dirty, there's always people who don't deserve to be caught up into it or caught up into it. There's ambiguity. Yeah, and, and that's confusion. and that's something we have to admit. And In the context of this Bush War too, uh, we did mm -hmm. mention civilian casualties happening. These engagements, especially the fire force engagements, when they're closing that net, so they've got airborne troops, they've got helicopter-borne troops, they've mm -hmm. got ground element troops all closing in on one enemy. By the time they deal with that CT, that communist terrorist cadre, they could be under 100 meters. They oftentimes see the expression of the person they're killing, which is not super common in, in warfare. You mm -hmm. normally, you know, you call an airstrike, you fire some mortars at them. No, these guys were going you're, up You're shooting personal. from behind cover. Yeah, and that, that that's... That's a completely different experience. If we look to antiquity with hand-to-hand -hand combat being 
regular in, in the you know, medieval era. It was, there's a lot of accounts of just guys getting messed up and monarchs being messed up because of Mm -hmm. all the conflict and and horror that you can only imagine being stuck in with somebody hand to hand and having to literally fight tooth and nail to not get your, you know, head chopped off. Mm -hmm. And this, this is pretty darn close to that because you're there with your MAG or your FN, and you can see the guy. You can see his face and the expression on his face, the hatred, the fear, the confusion, the anger, the rage, maybe the joy. Who knows? Who knows what you're seeing in those eyes? And he can see your eyes and all, all your your emotions, and and you gotta you gotta schwack him because he's trying to schwack you, and that's that's that was the reality of their bush war. Mm-hmm. And as they did that more and more, they got desensitized to it, and they had no issue by. 79 uh whacking whacking some of these guys and mm-hmm. executing a prisoner of war again we're not saying it's justified yeah we're not taking a side on this we're just it's, explaining it's, what happened it's a complex thing man mm-hmm. i don't i don't pretend to have an answer for that it's just yeah. some of you you have to understand about that war that happened that happened on both sides mm-hmm. uh one interesting thing i think we should briefly touch on as far as civilians are concerned are I'm probably not saying this right, but the Mujibias, who are... Mujibas, yeah. Yeah, who were um, either young men and women or children who basically acted as informants for the guerrillas and were generally uh, herdsmen or herdswomen who would, while they were going out with their animals or surveying the land, uh, would also be on the lookout for... Rhodesian soldiers and would report them back to guerrillas and uh, Rhodesians would often try to avoid being seen by them. Chris Cox mentions that in the book because uh, and it just I think lends another element to who can you trust in this kind of yeah it's very complex yeah and it just there's so many parallels between this war and Vietnam or other things this uh, even one of the things Chris Cox mentions is and I think something that the Rhodesian high command made the same mistake as the Americans in Vietnam is they they took put too much attention on kill counts and substitute that for actual results because it didn't matter because the the guerrillas could replace their losses with fighters from other outside other, other cadres other, units uh, yeah outside other of camps. Rhodesia yeah. there were always guerrillas coming in from other countries um the Rhodesians though had foreign fighters notwithstanding a finite amount of manpower and white immigration was out of Rhodesia was insane. Yes. You're talking yeah. about black immigration coming in that didn't yeah. happen. They're getting refugees or getting yeah. all these people crossing uh, the Limpopo desert into South Africa at the time the, the same stuff was happening. These people were all crossing in to get into these countries. But at the same time, the white population, which a lot of people kind of mischaracterize as these crazy zealous conservatives a lot of them like like chris cox wanted to actually get out and a lot of them did there was all kinds of really really high desertion rates in a lot of units especially among the foreign volunteers like Mm -hmm. all those french foreign legion guys in the seventh uh seventh independent company they all deserted they all bugged out the moment they figured out this ain't this ain't working Mm -hmm. so these these guys uh, all 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 left the moment they could we gotta make another correction by the way we said that Chris Cox was actually trying to go to South Africa. He was actually on the train to Mozambique. He was getting out. Yeah. He was literally like 
screw this, I don't want to fight in this war. And then he kind of yeah. had a last minute change of mm -hmm. heart, literally yes. while he was on the train halfway to Mozambique, yeah. and he decided to take the train back. And he was yeah. just like, you know what, I don't want to run away yeah. from this, I'm going to deal with it. Chris, so that's how he ends up. Chris Cox is actually a critic the of the uh, Rhodesian front. Yeah. He, he, he says that he wanted, uh, he never says that he wants majority rule, but he was certainly somebody who was more sympathetic towards that position. Yeah, and, and for context, the Rhodesian Front is the government of Ian Douglas Smith. Yes. Who wrote another book called The Great Betrayal, which, which we, will we, will which we will definitely That's cover. That's an extremely important text. It is. Uh, one thing I'd like to talk a bit about here, Hank, is the media is mentioned a little bit in this book. There is the, the Cheetah newspaper, which is... That's the newspaper of the RLI. Yeah, the newspaper of the RLI, which talks about sort of, in quite a tongue-in-cheek way about the uh, the war, while also in some ways reminded me a bit of like sort of a Legion newspaper. Dispatches from the from France, dispatches from the front or whatever. Like yeah, yeah, and just, yeah, it's certainly uh, an instrument of camaraderie. But also, the BBC is mentioned interviewing Rhodesian soldiers in the book. They never had particularly fair coverage. I don't think Rhodesians got a lot of fair coverage in their time. Yes. So to put it gently. Although I will say I've there is that uh fourteen minute video from that's uh the Ion Rhodesia that is a rel certainly more fair coverage than I think anything you and I would have seen in our lifetime of something this controversial. Yeah, I still don't think it was very fair coverage. I've seen that. Yes, you, you know the video I'm talking to. I'm yeah. sorry, I forget which the, British station. The, uh, but it, there's but also the Buckley interview with... Yes, with Ian Smith. Yes, no, Buckley think, was, did, was a bit unfair to I don't Smith, think but, uh, they got a fair shake generally. Yes. Because I think a lot of these news sources, and I think the Rhodesians themselves, didn't know to what extent like this was a very, very tribal conflict. And I think they, they kind of knew deep down that there's something mm -hmm. really deep going on and there's going to be vengeance because there was there was after the bush war right after the rhodesian bush war 1983-1984 there was a unit raised called the the fifth brigade under the zanu banner they were north korean trained militia basically that went out and massacred up to 20,000 20, Nenabili people, innocent civilians mm -hmm. or who they perceived to be collaborators with Joseph or Joshua Nakomo Nokomo was forced to leave the country as tens of thousands of people were getting murdered in the streets, summary executions, people were being beat to death, people were being killed in all kinds of nasty ways and burned. Yeah. Uh, the so, majority of the white population fled. In yeah, the majority of the white population fled the during this decade, period. Yeah. yeah, over the next decade, just because of the uncertainty of yeah. this period. And there were land seizures, like sort of Soviets. Not, not quite yet, not quite yet. There was a little bit later. Okay. So, but... I think just because of the backdrop of the... The event was called the Gakura Hundi, which is a Netabili word. This is the, the, the rain that washes off the chafe. Uh, it was it was a pretty... It was, it was a genocide by every... You know, you have one yeah. ethnic group wiping, trying to wipe out another ethnic group. It's a genocide, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. And there's, there's a lot of controversy over the actual death count. I don't think we'll ever truly know what that was. Just because of the nature of these kind of random summary executions where they go from village to village or sometimes in the cities they'll be just finding like hey you are netabili you're a collaborator with an enemy of the state bang mm -hmm. it was that quick and it was that kind of almost random there was a little bit of pre-planning but they let the fifth brigade kind of go loose throughout the country and 
uh, we will never know exactly how many people dies in the tens of thousands. Mm. I would say maybe, maybe 20,000, but I, I don't know for sure. And there's, there's kind of not a lot of study on it because Zimbabwe right now is still kind of a closed country. It's not something I like to talk about, but there mm-hmm. was retribution right after the war oh, because absolutely. this Rhodesian Bush war that we're talking about that Chris Cox is fighting in is a very, very tribal war and it's, it's, it's very gnarly, uh, mm-hmm. but especially by the time yeah. of the end. Well, I think a lot of Western people at the time, and by Western, I mean people who live in Western Europe and North America and to a lesser extent Australia and New Zealand, viewed this, I don't think they really understood the Rhodesian Bush War very well. They sort of saw it, I think, as the last sort of remnants of colonial power holding on to, uh, in, in the face of the march of progress. I don't think they understood how messy and tribal the situation on the ground was. And it didn't have a clue. Yeah, no, and they... And the stripes haven't existed in yes. Europe for a millennia, at least. Well, and they, also, turn into, they turn into, the, into nations and, and the country, kingdoms. And, and, like, if you look at... Yeah. There has been horrific, quote-unquote, tribal violence in European history mm-hmm. fairly recently, but it was almost all in, like, Eastern Europe. Like, you look at after the Great mm-hmm. War, yeah. uh, or even, you know, Yugoslavia in the 90s, but... The countries where most of the people who'd be, you know, these journalists would be coming from places like Britain, France, America, you don't have that same, you don't understand, I think, balkanization the same way. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, the Rhodesians were stuck in the middle of balkanization and were at the same time trying to build harmony while also trying to hold power and sort of suppress the balkanization. And I think they just found themselves in an untenable position, to be quite honest. So for the foot soldier on the ground, finding themselves in that messy of a situation, we mentioned in the first podcast as well, they're dealing with the elements, so Chris Cox gets stung, not once, but twice. <laughs> by, a by a scorpion. Good at once in the damn eye. So I can't even imagine he's anything stabbed. that painful. <laughs> he's fighting these communists that yeah. he's not sure why he's fighting them. He's stabbed in the eye by scorpions. He's seeing all these horrible things happening. Because we, we described that massacre. And yes. He's he there finds, for the aftermath. He sees yeah. the bodies, the piles of bodies. Yes. Uh, a, a, a woman that's been forced to beat, I think, her own infant? No, another infant. Yes. Yeah, so the mother of the infant was sexually assaulted yeah. and stabbed to death with bayonets. Yeah, and then the other woman in the village was forced to beat her still-living child to death, her yeah. infant child to death. With a stick, yeah. I think she was killed afterwards. But no, they let. I think they, they let, her, let live. her live. Yeah. Well, that's awful nice of them. Yeah. No. Yeah. And then at, so, at the end of it, they just shot all the livestock for there to go, just yeah. for kicks, I guess, just for good measure. So yeah. he's witnessing all this. He's getting stabbed by scorpions. His only escape is actually like marijuana, because like we said in the yes. previous podcast these Rhodesians are kind of degenerate. <laughs> they like yeah. they like sex, they like booze, yeah. they like prostitutes, and they actually like weed. They love marijuana. Yeah. They call it uh, Daga. They smoke a lot of it. They get in trouble for smoking it, and they don't care. They get thrown in det- detention barracks. There's a reason why they're called Rhodesian little idiots, but there's just as much substance abuse as the Vietnam War in many ways. And I think it's because the morale was kind of low. Just yeah, they were... Stuff like this. Um, Rhodesians, I mean, they fought hard, but they also partied hard. Like, all the time when they're not fighting or not training, um, they're getting drunk, they're having sex with, 
usually prostitutes and sometimes just ran if you're <laughs> if you're lucky you had a girlfriend if you're lucky, uh if yeah. you if you weren't so lucky they had like literal like women camp followers women who would follow the um yeah they'd, they'd be at the train stations yeah to just just to have you know sex for you know a bit of money or maybe a pack of beer or whatever something yeah. and I, i'm gonna just read an excerpt here from the book later through such later though such habits formed during the war that was the, their raison d'etre proved hard to break many of my comrades still tend to drink too much i'm an alcoholic all of us start at the top of the mountain, young and full of hope. But our parents' war changed all that. There was no glory. Just drink, dr just drink drugs, and death. Drink, drugs, and death. That's yeah. what that cycle of self-destruction ends up. But that's what these guys were kind of getting into yes. during their war. So you can only imagine the incredible strain they were under when those were their only escapes. And as we talked about, these guys stopped showering and smoked weed and had sex with prostitutes, and that's that's all they did. Or outside. masturbated, or in, masturbated public. in public. <laughs> yeah, <if there> was... <laughs> and that was their life outside of this this horrible close quarters. Yeah, bush you could... Now, this wasn't the experience of every single Rhodesian soldier, no. but in the RLI, and obviously, it's not the experience of officers in the Rhodesian Light yes. Infantry or soldiers in the Rhodesian Regiment, but for a unit that was regularly engaged in combat where the morale was slowly decreasing over time. Mm -hmm. This is the, the kind of stuff that you were dealing with. Yeah. You also, of course, had that, the, just this, I guess you can call it standard, even though there's nothing standard about it, but seeing your friends get killed in combat. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, Hugh McCall was killed in action and that affected uh, Chris Cox greatly later in his career. And watching guys get injured in, in very horrible ways. And like, yes. one of the most vivid accounts... Yes, there is is of of uh, a young soldier by the name of of Trevor Schultz, and I'll get I'll give you a little background before you mm -hmm. get into the excerpt here. But Trev Schultz is an orphan before he joins the Rhodesian Light Infantry. He doesn't really have a family, and he finds family in the Rhodesian Light Infantry as a very very young man because they offer him a sense of camar camaraderie. He's welcome somewhere, whereas his family had kind of abandoned him and left him alone in the world as far as he felt and he's he's loyal to a t with the unit mm -hmm. he's loyal he's he's he's, he's a, a good soldier he's loyal and despite all this and the fight the fact that he's a pretty good damn soldier and he's obsessed with the unit because that's all he knows he he kind of bites the dust he gets nailed in the head and and in a, in a pretty dramatic way he has to be hauled away and, yeah. and, and, and uh, Chris Cox witnesses all this. Yes, uh, to, to just quote again from the book. So Schultz did not die. He recovered, if that's what you can call it. He's paralyzed down his left side and has a steel plate in his head. He has managed to get a menial clerical job in Harare, but he may need to have his left arm amputated. I don't see him anymore. You'll be happy to know by the end of the book, on a slighter, more, slightly lighter note, Chris Cox makes a resolution to see Schultz, and I yeah. think I they, think they, they, he did. They, yeah, they he did meet up with and, and Schultz. Schultz lived after. a pretty long life afterwards, and yes, um, um, he's deceased now. Yes. You know, God rest his soul. Mm -hmm. But he did live a pretty long life, yeah. and uh, he's he raised a family after his time in the RLI, and he seems to have done relatively okay for himself, despite his pretty, despite pretty gnarly. So he was shot in the head, losing and, uh, some of his yeah. brain, and it was actually um, RAR 
Rhodesian African rifle soldiers that got him out of that gunfight mm-hmm. and kind of got him to the RLI medic that saved his life. It was a very, yeah. this is why you got to get the book, guys. We're not going to read that extra for you because that's a long yeah. firefight. That's a long day for those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, just watching your buddies get killed, dealing with the conditions, the buffalo thorns, the scorpions stabbing you in the eye, the media around the world all against you, the ambiguity of who the enemy is, what you're actually fighting and who you're actually fighting for and what the tribal affiliations for of the people that you are fighting or who are allegedly on your side. And your only escape being alcohol, substance abuse, sex addicts, sex addicts. It's, it's, it's a hard knock life. Yeah, no, it was. And I think that is one of the major things I think we should take away from this is this was a war like most wars fought by young men who didn't know. And I don't think they ever know what they're signing up for. And a lot of young men, both white and black, came back from this forever changed if they came back at all. And it was quite a, uh, quite a tragedy in many ways, what happened to this generation. As mentioned at the beginning of our last episode, this, was, uh, this generation of Rhodesians was a lost generation, greatly impacted by the war. And much in the same way, the, the silent generation, I think, was impacted by the Great War. It's just something you don't really get over. So with that, get Fire Force, Chris Cox. Mm-hmm. I think we're. I think the fifth edition is going to come out pretty soon. I think because this fourth edition that I that I currently have, I don't know if it's still in print. So I think there is a fifth edition out there now. Perhaps I don't. I'll, I'll, I'll have to. I don't know. You guys can look that up. Just look up Fire Force. There's tons of copies out there. It's on Facebook. Or sorry, not Facebook. Sorry, it's on Amazon. I'm pretty sure you can find it. Yes. It um, is. Get yourself Chris Cox's Fire Force. We'll we'll wrap up with an epitaph to not only the unit, but I think to a lot of the uh, the warriors that fought in Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. This is by Major General A N O McIntyre, O L M D C D, writing for Cheetah Magazine, the aforementioned magazine of the Rhodesian Light Infantry. The other day I signed letters of congratulations to the latest three saints receiving the Bronze Cross of Rhodesia. I read their citations, and looking at my old green and white stable belt, some of their glory seemed to rub off on this old soldier. On the same day, a bit of bump reminded me that my old mate and adjutant, Bruce Snellgar, had joined the ranks of gallant saints who aren't with us anymore. I sat at the dreaded desk and wondered about two things. First, does the the country know what it owes to the RLI, and secondly, what will be the verdict of history on our regiment? My answer to the first question is, I doubt it. Sure, they know that where the going is toughest, that's where you'll find the RLI, but perhaps they don't understand fully what that means. However, in regard to my second question, I'd say, one day they will know what they owe the RLI, for my bet is that history will say that the RLI troopy was the equal if not the peer, of the British para, the American Marine, the German Stormtrooper, or Napoleon's Imperial Guard. I will always be proud to say I was one of them O's. I think that quote sums up the spirit of the RLI and the men who fought in the Rhodesian Bush War. It is, in many ways, I think, a forgotten war, but it shouldn't be, because these men, as it said, are peers, I think, of many of the great warriors who fought in conflicts before and since. Get the book. 
Get the book and get the book. Get the book. Yeah, Chris Cox's Fire Force again. We read from the fourth edition, which is a 2011 publication. There's, there might be a new edition out now. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, there might be a sixth edition. Who knows? So, <laughs> you're listening said, to this in 2038. <laughs> yeah, there will be somebody listening to this in 2038, maybe. So, hey, get the book, guys. It's well worth the read. And like we like we said, we've been saying throughout the podcast, we barely scratched the surface. Just gave you an idea of some of the topics covered and some of the context. That being said. There's a certain website I know. It doesn't sell books. But it sells stuff with a lot of, I guess, tangential links to military history. Mm-hmm. You might know what store I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I think I do. I think starts I do. with an F. Yeah, no, it starts with an F. If actually, it has the same first word, at least. The first word is the same as the book we covered. Yeah, and, Fire the, Force. and the second word is, I think, Ventures, Ventures or Fire something. Force yeah, Fire Force yeah. Ventures, yeah. Cool store. They sell yeah. everything from... Shaka Cola chocolates, which give you Panzerlied powers <laughs> to invade France, uh, and you know make people that think you're in meth. It's actually caffeinated <laughs> chocolate. It's a lot of fun. They sell military surplus. Mm-hmm. They have some Rhodesian apparel. They have some flags. They have stuff from all kinds of different countries, from the Eastern Bloc to the good guys that won that always win wars. <laughs> <laughs> they have. Stuff from far as way as South Korea and Iraq, as of the time of recording this, at least. They have uh, military surplus from all over the world. Mm-hmm. They have posters. They have patches. They have patches. And they're pretty cool stories. You should check them out. www.fireforceventures.com. We talked about guns. Yes, and we guns did. Are, guns are cool. I guns, like guns are very cool. I like guns, Do you too. Have you shot guns? I have, I have shot guns. Have You've you shot, shot guns? guns? I've shot many guns. I've, I've shot less guns than you, but I have shot guns. Guns are cool. Guns are very cool. Guns is cool, in fact. Yes, guns. <laughs> guns is life. Guns is life. I like guns. I like working out. I like military history. I like stuff like this. And there's actually a place with articles, many, many articles, a blog, if you will, Called the Commando Blog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what them kids are reading these yeah, days, the kids, right? Them kids blogs, the blogs, Commando Blog with a K, K O M M A N D O Blog dot com, Commando Blog dot com. It's a great website with guns, gunsmithing tips, you know, cleaning tips, ammo, everything to do with guns, lifestyle, working out, military. Uh, there's a lot of prior service people that write articles about their own operational histories. There's a bit of stuff about Rhodesia on it. Mm-hmm. And we're hosted on it. You might actually be listening to this podcast on Commando Blog. So if you haven't already, though, check out commandoblog.com. You can find both Fire Force Ventures and Commando Blog on Facebook and Instagram and on YouTube as well if you'd like to see some videos hosted by those respective companies. You can also obviously visit them both on their websites at www.fireforceventures.com and www.commandoblog.com. You can also support this show, the Men Among Men podcast, hosted by Hank. And Bindu. And you can find us at www.commandoblog.com subscribestar.com slash fireforce dash ventures that's fireforce dash ventures where you can support us there's a whole bunch of cool tiers with Mm -hmm. benefits and rewards which is 
The Turbo Chad is the best one. We let yeah. you come on the yeah, show. We love our Turbo Chads. We love our Turbo Chads. Anyways, thank you guys for sticking with us. We've improved a little bit, I hope, since our pilot episode there. We're going to continue to improve. Your support is going to be invaluable as we work to improve the quality of our recordings, our, uh, maybe have additional production assistance down the road. We're doing this very in a very streamlined, you'd say ghetto shoestring way low budget low budget but if you would like to support our show and uncomplicated uh, and complicated <laughs> if you'd like to support our show as we go on and we will go on hint hint absolutely and we will go on that might be your next yeah. podcast uh you can find us on subscribestar again that's www.subscribestar.com slash fireforce dash adventures where you will find the men among Men Stories podcast hosted exclusively by Fire Force Ventures and Commando Block. With that being said, we'd like to extend a very special thanks to Mr. Chris Cox, who is still with us. He's still living and, and telling his story. He's still writing books. Definitely check out Fire Force. We'd like to extend a thanks to all of the men that served in three commando of the Rhodesian Light Infantry, the Lovers, all the various branches and elements and regiments in the Rhodesian Security Forces, the South African Defense Force, the Portuguese colonial armies during their respective wars all over Southern Africa. We'd like to, uh, you know, pay homages and thanks to the soldiers that fought for freedom in conflicts of all eras and pay respects to any that did their bit for king and country or maybe just the king, or maybe just country. To all of the active duty types out there, reservists, law enforcement officers, paramedics, dispatchers, healthcare professionals, essential workers, dealing with our world today and all the craziness that goes on, we thank you for allowing us to sleep sleep soundly in our beds, do this podcast for fun, and we hope that... You can join us next time for another podcast, and maybe we'll catch up and grab some chipoolies. Pull up and grab a chipoolie. Huh? <laughs>